0: On dress from Spring Valley. Damn, big room.
1: Uh, I'd like to thank Larry for asking me to speak and uh, for all the support that I got here tonight, uh, that's here uh, when I didn't know they would be here and just for my family for also being here. Um, I'll be honest, I've been wanting a chance to speak here for a while. And uh, I always got to have, like, the best thing to say because, you know, I'm so important and everything I say is gold. So, uh, but that's a little bit of honesty. So I still got some of that spiritual pride going on. Um, So I'm here to talk a little bit about, like, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. Um, You know, as far back as I can remember, I've always definitely felt a sense of a deep-rooted sense of shame of who I am and everything about me. There's just something, something wrong, something different, something that I should be striving for that I don't have yet. And uh, I always need something a little different, something more, something better. And uh, that comes along also with just a lot of feelings of loneliness, uh, feelings of being a loser, feelings of being a coward. Because whether it's true or not, that's how I always felt. And I always can compile evidence to to point to that stuff. But I'm not here because I have those problems. Those are human problems. I can meet a lot of people outside of the rooms who could probably identify with that. I'm here because of the weird relationship I have with alcohol. Um, I started drinking, I guess, when I was 15. But... Based on my experience, I don't believe I became alcoholic until I was about 18. Um, I crossed that invisible line, but really, like, it doesn't matter when or how or, like, what happened. The point is I am one now. Um, I crossed that line, and I identified with that physical allergy that the book talks about. You know, that that idea that once I physically put booze into my system, I have very little control over how much I'm going to take in that night, no matter what. I have going on or what I need to be doing, you know, like, uh, the drink just has a certain way of, uh, taking over my thought process and my drive. And, uh, that itself wouldn't be so much the problem if that's all I had to worry about, you know, cause if I knew I had this, uh, you know, abnormal physical reaction of booze, I could just say, yeah, I'm not going to ever do that again. And, uh, but my problem has always been up here. And, uh, you know the book calls it the crux of this problem called alcoholism that's that my default is always to go back to alcohol you know i'll always kind of find some rationale some reason not even a reason you know like the thought will cross my mind that it drinks a good idea and i'll take it you know i'll just get out of jail telling myself i really need to put the brakes on this and you know like three days later i'll be drinking just as i was before that and uh you know it's really interesting because it doesn't matter how smart i am how logical practical or uh driven or even you know analytical or even like i could even have a full knowledge of like what's going on with me and the fact that i drink abnormally and that i got this problem but it won't keep me sober you know like we were i heard them reading and the, uh, more about alcoholism, all these methods that we have tried or that I have tried to stay sober and none of them work. You know, before I got here, I had to identify with the fact that I was hopeless. You know, the, the book uses that word. It uses the words like hopeless and doomed. And, you know, to me, those aren't just kind of like little window dressing words. Like I had to look at what that meant. Like, uh, hopeless you know i'm beyond human aid that this is a condition that over any length of time that isn't gonna get better and and my history with alcohol proves it anytime in my life that alcohol has been a part of it my life has gotten worse even when it seems to be getting better because there's brief moments when i can put the brakes on my drinking you know until i get some stuff back and until i get like you know repair relations with my family Or, you know, get back on track with, like, what I need to be doing in the world. But uh, I'll always go back to the idea that it's okay to take a drink. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are, whether they're really severe or whether they're pretty minimal. You know, my mind will rationalize and I'll think it's a good idea to take a drink. And uh, that's my experience with alcohol. So, for a really long time, it seemed like I could only really hurt my family. Um, It seemed like... uh, Everything I did always kind of led to just playing a part and making them feel <laughs> feel really bad about, like, you know, who I was and stuff. And, uh, and and it took a little bit of pain, and it took a little bit of me willing to accept that, you know, it's not their fault, it's mine. You know, I'm the one adding up all this stuff. And when I got an Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it wasn't because I had this really desire to be a great guy, you know. It's a, uh, I got, I got to an Alcoholics Anonymous because I was out of ideas, you know, or I wouldn't say out of ideas, but I was out of faith in my ideas at that point. Um, Cause I can always come up with a new plan or a new kind of like direction that I should probably go for. But you know, the problem isn't like this plan or this method. The problem is just like my, my mind and the way that like I rationalize and the way that like I think and justify my behavior, so I got here, willing to open my ears to another suggestion. And you know, like I met a guy in these rooms who was of service. He, uh, you know, like he he was just another alcoholic like me. And you know, he might not have been perfect, but he he did all the things that mattered. He was a, he was of service. He went to meetings. You know he had taken these steps he had worked with others and he showed me by example you know what it meant to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I remember going over to his house you know like one day and uh he opens a book and he's all like give me a pocket big book he's all like okay so we're gonna read this and I was like really in my head you know I'm all really this is the best thing we can be doing you know reading this reading this book and uh like isn't there some more action or whatever that we could be tamed but that's what we did and uh that's how it kind of started for me. You know, I had to come up against some old prejudices, especially about the God idea. You know, I had uh, gone to Catholic school and I was done with that when I got here. You know, like, uh, so I had a lot of prejudices concerning that. But the book told me that I didn't have to swallow all that stuff right away. It just told me that I had to stop arguing. Um, and that was pretty much the attitude I went with to move forward. You know, I stopped arguing with this idea. is there uh, God, isn't there one who really cares? The point is that I'm alcoholic, and uh, if I'm desperate and willing to do anything, then that should be the only motivation for me that matters. And uh, that's what I went with. So, against my better judgment, I took the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> and uh, you know, I owned up to my character defects. I uh, I made amends to a lot of people that I didn't really think were good ideas at first you know i'm all like can we really put this off or does this really need to happen but it was brought to my attention that a lot of those did and at the end of that was what we call this spiritual awakening um you know i was able to finally come to realize that there's another way to live life than by being dishonest and by being uh, manipulative and being self-centered pretty generally most of the time um and that there was a way to grow into that in and uh you know, better life with the help of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous and this power that we talk about. And I have a lot of people in my life today that whether I wanted them to or not have helped me. I have not been able to grow on my own. You know, I I have a lot of people today that I run stuff by and that give me practical advice, whether I take it or not. You know, I'm at work and my boss actually uh, told the other coworkers, you know, if Andres says you're good to go, you guys are good for the day. You know, that didn't happen before I got sober. You know, like uh, I made amends where I had to pay some money back and somebody uh, and some and they treated me to some food afterwards. You know, like that's stuff that can only happen in Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, I have an amazing relationship with my family. I had an amazing talk with my mother today where uh, I was able to just be honest on levels that I've never been capable of doing. And that didn't originate in here. Like none of this, none of this stuff originated in here. I've come to believe that there's a power greater than myself in these rooms that allows that to be possible. Um, So if you're new today and uh, you're not sure, you know, I've been, I've sat in the back, you know, 14 days sober, nodding out because I can't sleep and just like feeling anxious and can't sit still. And I don't get this, you know, Um, and now I'm speaking at it. You know, that's funny. (laughs) funny to me anyway but there's a there's a way there's some stuff that we do around here you know by no means do we have a monopoly on any way to get sober but this is something that people willing to show me that they did and I had no options so that's what I do to stay sober so thanks for letting me share
2: Uh, I used to get in trouble a lot at school and have to stay after school, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, in eighth grade is when I had my first drink. And I didn't know what alcoholism was. My parents are not alcoholic. My mom's dad was alcoholic, but I never met him because he died when my mom was 15. He died from delirium tremens. That is the primary cause of death on his death certificate. And I didn't know him. So, and then they were from North Carolina and I was raised in Iowa. So I didn't know any of these people. So anyway, I uh, you know, had my first drink in eighth grade. I had two eighth grade boys over and an eighth grade girl over. My parents had gone away for their anniversary, which was all... Oh, my sobriety date's May 29th, 2004. My parents' anniversary was May 29th also, so the first day I drank happens to be the same date as my sobriety date, which happened, I think, 14 years later. Um, so it's kind of cool. But um, anyway... I, the parents had gone away, I was supposed to be in charge of my little brothers, and they had had a party, there were crates of liquor in the basement, and so I got the Jose Cuervo that hadn't been opened yet, and I popped it open, and I started drinking out of the bottle, because why not, and we started passing that bottle around. And I just, at the time, I just knew I wanted to do something kind of bad, and I kind of wanted to drink, and I I just wanted to be a teenager, you know? And I didn't know what alcohol was going to do for me that night, and I started to pass that bottle around. And pretty soon, all that kind of self-centered angst and self-consumption and fear, I was, like, relieved from it. And then I wanted more booze, and the bottle kept going around. And then I started kind of laughing and feeling warm. And then I remember engaging in, a, in some inappropriate behavior for an eighth grader. And then I, uh, then the next thought I had was, you know what, these boys are going to drink all my booze. And uh, this is my house and my alcohol. And I'm, I went and locked myself in a guest bedroom and I drank the rest of it. And then it was 4 a.m. and my parents were home. And... I was upstairs, and I had been in the basement, and my friends were gone, and I don't know what happened. I woke up with some pool of liquid. I don't know what that was. just knew that I was nervous I was in trouble and I had gotten away with it that's all I cared about I didn't care about the fact that I didn't remember part of the night and I don't know what happened to my friends or my brothers were you know I just was like okay and I really I, I really liked that experience and I couldn't wait to do it again and I didn't start drinking every day in eighth grade and I was in a lot of sports I was a good student I you know I tried to keep up this image I was in this tiny town in Iowa you know and my dad was somebody in the community, and I was trying to be the good girl. And uh, you know, I started drinking on the weekends at the parties, and I would go find the bikers that had the whiskey in their saddlebags, and because the keg beer took forever, and uh, I was like, Ugh. I had a large capacity for beer at an early age, and so I'd go find the whiskey, and then I'd go get the beer after I had enough whiskey, and um, and then you know, I just started getting a reputation I didn't want at a young age. Um, You know, I got pregnant at 15 in a blackout. I got pregnant at 19 in a blackout. And I just stopped doing what gets you pregnant. I can't look at my drinking. I'm like, this is a problem. And uh, and
0: then,
2: um, you know, I didn't, I had a lot of interactions with the police, but I was never arrested. And um, I don't think that happened to me today. I think I was a young little blonde girl in Iowa. You know, my friends, my two guy friends went to jail and my mom picked me up at the cop shop. And my uh, 19 years old, I blew whatever into the breathalyzer. And the guy knew my dad, the sheriff, giving me the test and took my beer and left. And I got pulled over when I was working in New York. And I don't know, I just didn't look at him. And I told him I was lost. (laughs) I I was drunk. So anyway, I graduated from high school with honors went to the University of Iowa, and at that point in time, my parents had been divorced. My um, mom is saying things to me like, you're a budding alcoholic, you're a budding alcoholic. Because I started drinking pretty much on a daily basis at 16, right around the time I got my driver's license and got my car. So I was like, this good girl, good student, sports, athletics, choir, anything you can think of, I was in. And then by night, I was at my way too older boyfriend's apartment, slash local drug dealer, and... I was drinking all night, they were doing a whole lot of other stuff but, you know, I just drank and uh, and then I go to school I come home at 7am and get ready and go to school and that's kind of how I did my last two years of high school so my mom is obviously noticing this and she is saying you know, you're a budding alcoholic, you're a budding alcoholic and I was like, don't talk to me, do you see my grades I'm going to university, leave me alone and that's the podium version of how I spoke to my mother I did not, I was really rude and disrespectful and I went to uh, the university and I went from this straight A student to three D's and an F my first semester because I didn't attend class or learn anything and I ended up switching majors and getting by by the skin of my teeth and at 19 I um got really, really depressed, and I couldn't get out of bed, and so I went to see a psychologist, because I knew something was wrong with me, I just didn't realize it was alcoholism, and a psychologist didn't ask me how much I drank, and I didn't volunteer that information, because at that time, it was nowhere, not even a thought, and... Um, You know he just told me I was in a sophomore slump and I said okay and I left and 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 I was always seeking a spiritual answer from the time I started drinking you know I learned how to do transcendental meditation at 15 when I was in I became a vegetarian when I was in college I was going to a lot of churches I was rubbing olive oil on the walls and speaking in tongues and drinking vodka at the same time excuse me and um you know I was just trying to do something to change the way i felt and uh i graduated from college and i knew that iowa had become the problem it was apparent and it was cold and i'm out of here and i got in my ford tempo in 1998 and drove to san diego and my parents weren't like please don't leave you know they're like don't let the door hit you i didn't have a cell phone they didn't care i mean they cared but they're just like goodbye and uh i moved out here and had a series of jobs, and, um, uh, you know, instead of, like, coming to in a somewhere on the streets of Iowa, I came to with the Pacific Ocean going over me, and I remember when I first went to the beach to kind of look at the stars in a drunken stupor, um, the ocean was really far away, and then the tide came in, and I'm glad I woke up when that happened. Um, so... But you know what? I went back in and drank more that night because if I'm upright and I'm mobile and I'm already drinking, I want to drink some more, especially if someone else is paying for it. And so... Um- ended up going to more schooling out here in San Diego because I thought you know I really need to get a career going I need to do something and I went and got this career and then I moved to Orange County from San Diego and that was the beginning of the end of my drinking and I had already started isolating a lot and drinking alone a lot but I was still going out sometimes and at that point it turned and I only drank alone and I only drank at home And I drank vodka every night, and I drank on the floor because I knew by that point in time it was dangerous for me to drink. Because once I put alcohol into my body, my body just wants another one and another one, and I don't stop. And I I cannot recall a time except one time where I controlled my drinking, and I was not enjoying it. I had had about four drinks before the appetizers were done, and my friend's parents were looking at me weird, and it was 11 in the morning. And... And I thought, they're going to think I'm an alcoholic. And that was years before I got sober. And and I just didn't drink through the rest of the meal because they were looking at me funny. And then as soon as I got home, I drank more. And then, anyway, so I just never drank normally is my point. And so I started drinking on the floor at home because my theory was you can't fall if you're already there. And because I was danger I was not safe and uh and then I had a I guess it's a moment of clarity I mean a lot of bad stuff happened to me that I shared with my sponsor in my four-step but I don't know why this made me see the light when this happened but I went out with my friend she asked me to go with her to Hollywood to meet some guy I don't know I agreed to go. I thought, you know what, I haven't been around people in a while. I should go be around people. And I went to Hollywood, and I drank everything around me. Then I remember the house lights came on wherever we were, and I was nervous because I wasn't done drinking. And I said, three shots of vodka. I'll do a shot of vodka. And they didn't do it, so I drank theirs, and... Um, then we were in their nice fancy car on the 101 up by wherever and I just start puking all over their nice car and all over the freeway and all over them and, um, which honestly was not abnormal for me, but just other people were around and, um, um, I, the thought came upon me. Nobody else is puking in this car but you, and and there were five, four other people in there, and and I don't know why. I mean, I did so much other stuff, but that night I saw my drinking for the first time, and I thought, you know, I might want to look at this, and so that's. When I had my chapter three experiment, where I tried to control and enjoy it, my first experiment was to try and have a diet coke between my martinis, because um, I thought I'm just thirsty. California's a desert climate. I'm just really thirsty. I can't, you know. And so I never had a diet coke. Is how that turned out because I had a martini first. Then the second thing I did, and I'm 27 years old when this happens. Um, I try not to drink Monday through Wednesday. That was the big life goal. And, uh, I can't get past a Monday night without drinking. And I'm 27. And I feel young and, like, and that's just the physical drinking part. Inside, I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I'm thinking about suicide on a regular basis. I feel like I have nothing. It's just a dark... I have a job. That's it. And I hate it, you know? And, um... And I'm getting talked to at work about how I smell and slamming doors and cussing at the top of my lungs in a business environment. And it was not nice because I didn't drink at work. So every day I'm detoxing at work, and I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And so I didn't act how you're supposed to act at a job. And so I drove home one last night on May 28th in a blackout. Um... I just remember getting in the driveway and going, oh, I made it, and I was drunk, and I came to the next day, which was Saturday, May 29, 2004, and I thought, I can't live this way anymore, and I had met my Aunt Donna about a year before. She lives in Hawaii. She lived on Kauai for a while, too, so welcome to our Hawaii visitor, Um, and she's sober 31 years now. She was sober 20 at the time. And one of my bosses was sober, and his secretary had broken his anonymity to me and she was sober at work so I had was kind of surrounded by people and I was like I don't know why people are telling me this stuff and so I came to that day and I thought I can't live this way anymore it wasn't I'm going to AA it wasn't I'm getting sober or stopping drinking I just thought I want to blow my brains out every day and I can't stop drinking you know at that point and I um I ended up going to the Lakewood Public Library, and I was just going to, I knew I needed to stay busy, because on Saturday morning, I started drinking. (laughs) You know, I I, I didn't work on Saturday, so I drank right away in the morning, and I knew I had to get out of the house. And so I went to the library, and I was just going to get a biography or something, and I found myself standing in the aisle on alcoholism, and I think it was like in the back corner of the library, and I didn't mean to be standing there, I consider it the grace of God, but I got all these different books, and like, alcohol abuse and alcohol dependency, the AA story, and there was just a stack of books, and I looked like a train wreck, I was probably 30 pounds heavier than I am right now, I was very bloated from all that drinking, and I um, went and checked those books out, and I probably read maybe for ten seconds, and I could I was fitting all the categories, and I was freaking out. I'm like, oh, I might be alcoholic. I gotta get out of here. And I drove to work, even though we were closed, and I tried to work for a little bit. I just needed to stay busy. And I was getting really like detoxy. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, my boss, who is sober, walked in the office, and I took it as a sign that I was doing the right thing that day. And. I didn't tell him I wasn't drinking, and so the only... So what happens to me is I don't drink for six weeks, and I don't go to AA for six weeks, and I detox at home, and it was really, really, really bad, and I hope I never have to go through that again. Um, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know that I am detoxing. I'm not sleeping at night, so if you're new and you're having trouble sleeping, I didn't sleep right for four months. I want you to know it will get better. Just give it some time and go to lots of meetings. (laughs) And, um... And uh, I was sweating through my sheets. I was rubbing my feet on the fitted sheet. I remember that. I was grabbing my mattress. And I just remember being sick. And um, I know my Aunt Donna was calling me every day from Hawaii, talking to me about her alcoholism saying things to me like normal drinkers don't go into a blackout every time they drink and I said well if you drink as much hard liquor as I did you would and I just had an answer for everything and um, the only good thing that happened during that time, because what happened is when you take my solution of alcohol away from me and I don't have the solution of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm in a really bad place. And all my problems and all that depression and all that loneliness and anxiety are amplified. And I want to kill myself more than ever. And I've got a plan and um, because I don't want to drink again, but I don't want to be here anymore. And I had no hope. And, um, the only good thing that happened during that time is I literally shrunk. My weight just kind of came off from not drinking. So I was drinking a lot and I was getting that bloat and, um, um, and my boss noticed I looked different. And so Steve walked by the office. He goes, what are you doing? Are you working out?" Blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was like, uh, and I'm getting really depressed. and I'm thinking about my plan to die. And, and my coworker worker Gary, <laughs> came, up, came out of his office and he said, that's because Ann stopped drinking. And I was like... <laughs> And I'm pretty crispy dry at that point. And I'm like, thanks, Gary. And so I thought Steve was going to come at me with literature and all this stuff. And he didn't, you know, he just, I don't know the time frame because I can't remember it. But eventually he came into my office and sat down and shut the door. And it was one alcoholic talking to another. And that's how my journey became to come here happened. And he said, you know, Ann, this might be the only window in the cosmos open for you to get sober. And I suggest you walk through it. And I believed him because I had my Diet Coke and my Wednesday through Wednesday experiment. And I don't know why I got sober the day I did other than the grace of a loving God or higher power or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't me. And, um... And he goes, you know, you have to go to Santa Barbara for work tomorrow. Why don't you listen to this CD? And I don't know that it's an AA speaker. I I was like, okay. So I put this CD in, and it was Sister Maurice from the Bronx. And she said, Alcoholics Anonymous taught her to what thine own self-beature really means, and to love thy neighbor as thyself, not instead of thyself. And for some reason, those things really struck a chord with me, and I laughed, and I cried. And I didn't know I was identifying with an Alcoholics Anonymous speaker. But um, I brought the CD back to him the next day, and I said, Steve, that was wonderful, because I felt a little better from hearing that and I said can I have another cd because I thought I'll stay sober by cd I don't need to go to meetings and he said why don't you go to a meeting with my friend Lisa and I thought, oh, that sounds awful. And so I said yes, of course, because when your boss tells you to go to AA, you say, you just say yes. And so I went to my first meeting at 15th and Belleville in Newport Beach. It was a beginner's meeting at a church there. It was, um, I did not stand up and identify. I was um, observing. Thank you very much. People were, everyone knew Lisa, and everyone kept coming to me asking me if I was new and trying to touch me and hug me, and I was wanted to punch them, and I was really angry, and um, Um, and then they read chapter five and i'll never forget hearing chapter five for the first time so i was like oh my gosh that's the steps and i listened really close enough and i just thought it was amazing and um i try to be really quiet in a meeting anyway you know but i always think there could be someone in here that's never heard chapter five even though a lot of us have heard it many times and um And then different people came up to the podium and started sharing, and I identified with what they were saying, and I kind of sunk down in my seat, and my hair went up on the back of my neck, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm an alcoholic. This is what's been wrong with me my whole life. And I was very, very grateful for about a split second. And then I thought, oh, God, I'm an alcoholic. That means I have to go to these stupid meetings and do these stupid steps. I want to kill myself. And... Luckily, that was just on the inside, and I just went to another meeting with Lisa, and I went to another meeting with Lisa, and she kind of had me follow her around for two weeks, and um, eventually I stood up and I said, I'm I'm an alcoholic, and I cried, and I thought, now i got to really do something about this. And I said, you know, you're living up in Lakewood. Why don't you go to Bellflower Big Book Group on Monday night and ask for Karen or Johnny? I don't know Bellflower from any other meeting. I don't know who Karen and Johnny are. I walk into a meeting like this big, and I thought, oh, my gosh, because I've been going to smaller meetings. And I said, and I'm like, does anyone have a last name? You know? And I was like, does anyone know Karen or Johnny? You know? Like, how they get another name? And they just pointed. And I walked up to Karen and I said, Hey, I'm Ann. Lisa sent me. And apparently Karen didn't know that, but she acted like she did. And she said, Do you have a sponsor? I don't even know what a sponsor is. And she, I said, No. She goes, I'm going to be your sponsor. I said, Okay. And she goes, Go get in the greeting line. I said, Okay, because I just that's what what you do. And I stood in. That grading line for months, and um, she at the end of that meeting she said, "Call me at 7:30 in the morning." And I had been calling that woman at 7:30 in the morning for 11 years, every day. And uh, at one point, I think I was four or five years sober. I'm like, "Can I stop calling you every day?" Like, I'm okay. And she said, "If you want to stop what's working, go ahead." I'm like, "Never mind." So <laughs> anyway, she took me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as are outlined in the Big Book. I was really, really angry my first couple years of sobriety. I would stand in that greeting line, and some days I'd be really good, like, welcome to AA. And some days I would just be bawling, crying. i like, oh, welcome. And then I'd be really angry. I'm like, what's up? Move. Keep going. And I was just be, you know, and it was like that my first year. And all I can say to you, newcomer, is that I took the action despite how I felt. I went and got a commitment even though I didn't want to. I smiled and put my hand out to the newcomer even though I didn't want to. And I showed up at those meetings even though I didn't want to. And, you know, I almost drank at 90 days. I was laid because I worked late for my meeting and I was in the left lane, I was gonna go home and drink. And last minute, I went over three lanes of traffic and went right to the Arbor Road Tuesday night speaker meeting. And Dottie H was the speaker, and she saved my life that night. I heard the last 15 minutes of her talk, and she said, How many of you guys like to work out? Nobody raised their hand. She goes, But you like the results, right? And she goes, that's what we're doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're building our spiritual muscles, and it doesn't always feel good, but we like the results. I'm like, okay, I'm just building my spiritual muscles. <laughs>
1: Even
2: though I want to die. And so, you know, I did my fifth step with my sponsor, and I delayed on the fourth step. Don't do that. I mean, it doesn't take that long. I just delayed. And, you know, I never wrote dishonesty in the last column. And I... Uh, Apparently, I'm dishonest by omission, my sponsor pointed out. I uh, didn't know that. And so what that looks like in my life and can look like in my life today if I don't practice this program is someone will hurt my feelings or they'll do something that upsets me and I don't tell the truth about how I'm feeling and I just step it. I'm like, no, that's okay. It's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and then I build a resentment. And if I do that long enough, I'm going to drink again. I know that. And so my sponsors really help me with just communicating in a compassionate way because I only know how to shut down or tell you to go to hell, basically. And I don't know how to just communicate. And so AA's really helped me with that and my sponsors really helped me with that and all the examples in the rooms. I was fortunate enough to make amends i started sponsoring women at six months sober um not my idea and um my sponsor just told me to say yes and then she said you just got to stay one step ahead of them i said okay and uh what a gift i love sponsoring women i love whether i'm officially sponsoring or not but like helping other women um it's so i mean it's in our book it's like it's it's such a joy to see someone get this thing and to see their lives change and um Sorry, I'm getting emotional because on January seventh I gotta hold of one of my sponsors' hands as she took her last breath and um she had cancer and uh that was right after my honeymoon and so um but you know, it was so peaceful and beautiful and she was at peace and um I'm so grateful I gotta be there and that's because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think I could have done that. I know I couldn't have done that before. So, um, anyway, that just kinda came out. So, um Uh, I got to make amends, and, uh, my father and I were estranged from one another when I got sober, and, um, um, my sponsor had me do my amends with him a little bit different. The rest of them, I kind of did, hi, you know, let's make an appointment, I want to apologize for X, Y, and Z, I was wrong, like, to know what I can do to make that right, if there's anything else I'm forgetting, please let me know that too, my mom had a laundry list, but, um... And I paid off the credit card debt and all that stuff. And that took time. It wasn't overnight. I didn't enjoy paying off the credit cards. But I'm glad it's over and I have good credit today. And, um, you know, uh, with my father, though, my sponsor said, why don't you um, call your dad and ask if you can start calling him once a week at a day and time convenient for him. And I'm like, oh, what an order. And so I didn't call. I didn't do that. And I sat on that direction and I got in a lot of pain. And and I'm either going to drink or I'm going to do the action. If that's my experience in AA. So I called my father one night at Target. And I just said, Dad. And he said, yeah. And I said, I was wondering if I start calling you today. And time convenient for you. And I was couldn't talk right. And he said, I would love that. And so I started calling my dad on Saturdays. And I called him today. And we, over a very slow period of time, became very, very close, like very close. He texts me all the time. And so, and he lived in Oregon at the time. And I wasn't, I just, he, he's a really great human being. And I uh, started inviting myself up to Oregon where he was living at the time for Thanksgiving weekend because I figured it's four days total, two are travel days. It's quick. And, you know, my dad and I bonded over college rival football games, and we'd sit in these big easy chairs and watch football all day and order pizza, and we just got, we're very close. And it's been years now, but my dad, um, I thought I was going to lose my dad. Hmm. Um, I got to be a daughter because of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wouldn't have even known he was going through what he was going through. Um, had I not made those amends and and he came through the other side it took about four years and uh I'm so grateful that um he's in my life and he walked me down the aisle on December 30th <laughs> so um it was pretty uh, amazing anyway um Okay, now what? So, oh, and then, so I told you about those pregnancies as a teenager. I was very ashamed of those things. And my friend Sarah lives in Kansas City, Missouri, and she kept asking me to come visit her. And I was like, I want to go to Missouri on my vacation. And, um, I mean, I didn't say that to her, but I was thinking it. And then... I eventually said, sure. And um, I said, your birthday's Memorial Day weekend. I'll come out there. And so right before I was going to go out there, she said, can I ask you a question? And she has two boys, um, Ryan and Evan. She's like, would you be Evan's godmother? We're going to have him baptized when you're out here. I said, that would be an honor and a privilege. And for some reason, that just made my heart break open. I started crying all the time. I get on an airline I've never been on before. It's Frontier Airlines, and they have animals on the wing. And this one had a mother and a baby cheetah, Lola and Max. I was like, ah! And I go in there, I go in there, and, um, um, oh, I go in there, and, um, Evan's just, he was two years old, and he's hilarious. He's older now. But I didn't know that this was going to be in store for me, but I was in the church holding this baby, and he's getting baptized, and it's my seven-year AA birthday that day. And I was just crying. And it was just an amazing experience. And it was about him. It wasn't about me, but it was just, just from suiting up and showing up and answering the phone and doing this program. Things happen in your life. Like, when you show up for life, life happens. And um, I moved. I ended up meeting my husband in an AA meeting, I don't know, almost four years ago now. This April will be four years ago. I had to speak on steps four and five and there was there's a question and answer period at that meeting and he raised his hand and said you know the book talks about the 12 and 12 talks about forming a true partnership how are your relationships today and i know i said something smart aleck like oh if you're asking if i have a boyfriend the answer is no and i'm like blah blah and then i answered it seriously and um you know, because I didn't date for my first eight years of sobriety. Um, that was not what I came here for. I came here to get sober, and i it wasn't my strong suit in my life. And so I just figured I was going to be like an AA nun and help women the rest of my life. And I, I was actually very cool with that and very much at peace with that. I was a very happy person. I wasn't looking for anything, and... Um, the secretary of that meeting, who's a friend of mine, played matchmaker, and I gave my phone number out, and then my now husband wasn't going to call me, and his sponsor egged him on, and so that's how that started, long distance for two years, and then I moved to San Diego a couple years ago, and, um, you know, we got married, and um, it was... That was recent, and um, we're expecting our first child. So, which was on purpose. Yeah, so, so I um, it's, a lot has happened in the last few months. So, I'm really excited. Um, but you know, the main thing is, is like we, in our home, AA comes first. We don't go to any of the same meetings. We used to go to one, but no, we don't. And that's fine. It doesn't really matter. But the main thing is, is I have to put my relationship with my higher power first and foremost every day I do the same thing I did when I got sober that I do today I hit my knees in the morning I thank God for the rest I ask to be sober and useful that day I write a gratitude list every day I read the 24-hour book I read the daily reflections and then someone gave me this other book that I started reading and um I write something that I get out of those readings in my gratitude list I call my sponsor at 7:30. I get calls from five to seven women a day um I go to regular meetings. I have commitments in almost all of my meetings except my book study, but I'm committed to going there. And, and, you know, when I do the deal and when I do this, when I maintain a fit spiritual condition, I have a really good life and I'm really at peace. And um, when I don't, I don't. And um, about six years sober, I had the flu and I missed a bunch of meetings. Well, maybe like 10 days worth. And uh, people from my home group kept calling me saying, How are you? How are you? Are you okay? How are you? And I was, got really mad by that. And I said, If I get one more loaded, how are you phone call? I'm going to go to Champagne Brunch, and then I'm going to Verizon, and I'm changing my cell phone number, and nobody will ever find me again. And then I had, thank goodness for all that prayer and meditation and all those meetings, because a little voice inside of me said, Are you really going to throw away six years of sobriety? You, you're... Head is thicker than your body, and you need a meeting. And I went to the 7:30 a.m. attitude adjustment meeting. I said, "Don't touch me. I'm a little sweaty," and um, and it saved my life. You know, I and it just showed me that. And I've heard it said by other speakers, I have alcoholism, not alcoholism. And it's really important for me to treat this on a regular basis. Um, and like every day, not regular, every day I have to do this. And so, um, if you're new. I have found, in my experience, it was very beneficial to get a sponsor because they'd have the experience going through the steps and um, help you go through the steps. I would strongly recommend doing the steps. It completely changed my life. It changed how I react to things. It changes my attitude. Um, I feel peaceful most of the time. I'm not perfect, but most of the time, until I like sit in my car sometimes. But I'm good, you know? And um, that's a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new, I just want to say welcome, and I hope that you find what I have found, and that's a really good life and a lot of peace. Thanks.
3: Andrea V. from San Diego.
0: Hi, my name is Andrea and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I want to thank Lauren for asking me to share. Um, Congratulations to the birthdays and the chip takers. Um, You know, my story, well... What it was like? Well, it was really, really, really bad. Um, I started drinking when I was thirteen or so, and I, you know, I drank because it was fun. I drank to, to fit in with my peers, and because um, it was the thing to do. And it, I had some really great times. on what I did not know at the time is that alcohol gave me relief from a discomfort that i felt um it gave me something that no person um no nothing else in my life could give me and i love the fact that when i took that first sip i could just have that sense of relief and have a sense of calm and feel like i fit in and feel like you liked me and i liked you and and everything was great Um, When, you know, going through high school and college, um, I continued to drink and I continued to party and have a good time. Um, And when I got out of college, I started to drink um, in a very different way than I I had been before. Um, I started to basically drink because I was lonely. And I started to drink because I didn't know how to deal with the normal day-to-day aspects of life. You know, if if the the most basic things happened to me, the only place I could seek any kind of solace was in the bottle. And I would look around and I would look at my friends who were, you know, who graduate and go to master's programs, you know, building relationships and doing all these things that I thought were so, should be so easy for a person to do. And I really didn't know how to do any of them. So instead, I sat in my apartment and I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank. And I was definitely an isolated drinker. Um, I would go out um, with friends occasionally, but the party was really on when I got home. I mean, that was really when I started to drink the way that I wanted to drink. Um, I didn't feel comfortable around anyone, and everything felt so much bigger than life, you know. Everything was too overwhelming for me, and alcohol gave me that relief that I needed, and at the time, it was... It was definitely my answer to to my problems you know um you know i i thought that it was my problem when i came into these rooms um i thought that you if i took away the alcohol that everything else would be great and that i would be able to go back to my life and keep on living the way that i was living um but i really really realized that you take away my answer which was alcohol and soon i need to find an answer somewhere else because i was restless i was irritable i was discontent i was of a discomfort that I really didn't know how to find other than in the bottle. So I came into the rooms of AA um, in October of 2013. I went to treatment and it was an amazing experience, but I didn't really get thoroughly honest. I wanted to be the model treatment student, you know, so I took, I put on, you know, I took all these, on all these responsibilities and I did what I was supposed to do, but I was still so ashamed of some of the things that I had done. I was still so racked with fear and so uncomfortable that I just said what I thought that the people, the treatment centers wanted me to say and not about, I was in treatment for about 90 days and about a week later I drank and I did not practice any kind of program. I did not have a sponsor. I did not work the steps. I did not find a higher power Um, I really thought that somehow I was going to be the one person in the history of the world to somehow get this alcoholism thing um, and be able to do it by myself. Um, And I was clearly very wrong. Um, I relapsed for about a month or so, and I was out there drinking, and it was a lot worse than it was before. Um, It was, you know, I got a DUI about two weeks into my relapse. And it was such, you know, I started to have these tangible consequences that I could really look at and say you know i'm absolutely out of control my life is unmanageable i need help and i knew you know and i went back into treatment and when i got out i got a sponsor i did sober living i started working the steps um but when i first looked at these steps i you know i was like well why do i have to look at my part i just have a problem with alcohol you take away with alcohol and everything's gonna be fine right um and i also had a problem with the higher power stuff i never had any kind of god in my life I didn't know what it felt like to have any faith in anything. Um, The only thing that was reliable in my life was alcohol. I mean, nothing else kind of gave me the satisfaction that that gave me or the relief. Um, And so as I was reading, um, especially We Agnostics, that part of the big book, I read it over and over again in treatment because I did not have a God and I knew that I had to find a power greater than myself in order if I was going to get this. And I really wanted to stay sober. I really, really wanted to stay sober. And one of the things I realized as a newcomer is that it really wasn't about finding some like specific idea of what God looked like or what at any of my fellows around me, what their God looked like. It was just a willingness to believe, a willingness to believe that, you know, they. It talks about in the big book, you know, that human resources. We, as a human being, like a doctor couldn't fix me. My fellows couldn't fix me. My family couldn't fix me. Love, any kind of, nothing could fix me. Um, So I had to look outside of myself. And I had to look for something greater and when I did that I started to you know be able to really take these steps and work with a sponsor and that's where the relief started coming in and it you know it's it's definitely hard to to look at my part in things um, it's hard to admit some of the shame and the guilt and the fear and all these things that I had been feeling and I always wondered why I you know I had all these feelings and I always kind of wondered why everyone else around me could deal with these feelings kind of normally, and I couldn't deal with the most basic things in life. Um, So, you know, once I started working the steps, I... I really started to, I, I didn't have a very clear understanding of my higher power at the beginning. I just was willing to believe. And that's really, for me, all that I needed. Um, because over time, I have developed a relationship with a higher power that has given me um, peace and comfort. Um, you know, life is life. I, I remember when I came into the rooms, I thought all these things that were had happened to me, because um, of course none of it was my fault, all these things that happened to me Um, were very distinct to an alcoholic or an addict, that these things were things that, you know, feelings and experiences um, that only happened because I was drinking. Um, And I realized that, no, my friends, my family, other people were going through, they went through heartache, they went through hard times, they felt sad, they felt mad, they felt happy, um, but they did not, they were not alcoholics. And so they found ways to deal with those things um, that wasn't a, you know, beeline to, to drink drinking. And I didn't know how to deal with any of that stuff. So, so when I started working the steps, um, that was when everything changed for me. Um, That was, you know, having a higher power in my life where all of the crippling fear that I felt as a newcomer, I, I didn't have faith yet, but for the first, I would say nine months or so, what I did have was hope. And I had hope because I had those moments in early sobriety where, um, where I was able to feel some sense of physical relief from alcoholism. And that was, for, you know, first and foremost, I was like, oh, it feels really good to be sober physically. And then I had hope because I started to feel comfortable around my peers. I would have long talks and long conversations with fellow alcoholics, and I started to feel a part of. And all of the things that I had been searching for in in alcohol, I started to feel those things in the rooms. I started to feel some comfort. I started to feel some ease. I started to feel um, hope and faith and things that I I never even knew how to feel before. I started to feel genuine joy when for years and years and years and years, I, I really just put on a happy expression when I thought that was what joy was. I thought that it was, you know, uh, for me, it was merely just, you know, I was acting basically. And when I was able to turn my will, my life over to the care of God, um, it was something that I never, ever thought that I was going to be able to do because I really didn't have a God before this. Um, But since I've done that, things have changed and my life has gotten so much better um you know i'm able to be an active part of my friends and family's lives um and i'm able to look at the fact that alcohol was not my problem i was my problem (laughs) And that I really had a lot of work to do, um, and you know some of the steps were very uncomfortable for me, and some of them still are. And you know looking at my part in things is not an enjoyable thing to do. But the sense of relief of talking through those things with a fellow alcoholic um, is something that I could never have found in alcohol, in another human being. It is simply a matter of you know a spirit, a spirituality that I have in my life today and you know i absolutely love this program um i you know i love 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 meetings whenever i walk into these rooms i feel like i'm amongst you know however many there are of you i feel like i'm amongst friends because um, the way that i drink and i know i didn't go too much into my story but there's nothing unique about the things i felt in my disease i mean there's nothing unique about the chaos and the the loneliness and and the the fear and the sadness and all those things that I felt are, everyone who raised their hand earlier, I'm sure, in their own unique way, felt those things. And it really is not about the content of what my story looked like. Um, it's, it's about those feelings and not being able to deal with them. Um, and today, you know, my life is really good. I mean, I still think that's part of the human experience um and as an alcoholic i now have really learned how to deal with those things in a way that i can be of service to others and be a good daughter and a good friend and be present in in my life in a way that i didn't think was possible and you know i used to hate the idea of turning my will over i was like i mean i can't make any decisions No, in fact, it meant that when I turned my will over, when I found a higher power, I was given a freedom that I never knew existed, Um, a freedom to live my life, a freedom um, to enjoy the little things, to have happiness, to, you know, wake up every morning and, and live in my sobriety and be able to be of service to others and to find a career path that I love and to you know, to just be there for my family and friends. And today, um, I really love my life. I don't think I mentioned my sobriety date. It's March 6, 2014, sorry about that. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I'm, I just feel like this journey is just beginning. And again, I know things will continue to happen throughout life, because um, again, life is life. These are not specific to the alcoholic, the, the bad and the good times. But today I have a solution with how to deal with them. So thank you.
3: Is, um this is kind of what was taught to me is that uh, there's really nothing more important than me coming to be here with you guys and um i don't know i didn't come here with that attitude um i had been sober before i had gotten sober in aa at 21 um for about three years and nine months and i had the bright idea to start selling drugs at about three years and six months of sobriety because uh i did not run that by a sponsor i did not uh i didn't run that by anybody except for the committee the committee was working hard and uh i don't know i just uh i'm really grateful to be here and um, I, th- I think part of the reason is because when i came here um i didn't come here because i wanted to get sober i came here because i ran out of money i ran out of money my landlord is kicking me out um circumstances kind of had that quicksand stretch all around me again and um, it took me one drink in about three months for that to happen and um take longer, man, I had some, I used to have some more fight, I think I just be able, used to be able to stretch it out, but um, I'm really grateful that uh, my last run, I, was, I had enough money to kind of do whatever I wanted to do, as much as I wanted to do it to myself, and um, a place to do it at, and I call that my little, it's like a prison cell that I used to call my apartment, and um, I'd wake up every single day, man, and uh, just like when I was younger, um, I started drinking when I was either 13 or 14, landed in juvenile hall by 16, again at 17, there wasn't a single year where I didn't spend um, where I wasn't incarcerated, and there also wasn't a single year where I was in a treat- where I wasn't in a treatment s- facility or a detox. Um, I'm not I'm not the guy I'm not a guy who knows how to live sober outside of um, any, some kind of like assisted living, like a like a senior care basically. Like you have to I I'm I'm good when I'm being watched, and I know what to say, and I kind of know how to act. I know who to impress. I know how to talk about the book. I mean, I get sober with Four Days Sober, which is my sobriety date March, March 19th, 2016. I have a sponsor, his name's Kip, my home group, Old Town Speaker. That's tomorrow at 7 p.m. You guys are all super welcome to attend. And, um, yeah, I man, I got a commitment at this meeting, too. I was taught, like, as soon as I sobered up to get a couple commitments. And um, the first thing I knew about my sponsor when I met him sobering up this time was, um, I mean, I pretty much I knew everything about the book. I knew everything you could tell me about the book. I knew enough about the book to basically kill me and anybody around me. And um, I'm the kind of guy who uses page 101 to justify going out and selling drugs to people because um, I have some kind of God work in my life and I don't have to drink over it. And that's literally, that's that's a delusion. That's 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 what I thought. It wasn't denial, it was was a delusion, man. Like I really believed my own sick thoughts. And um, our tenth step talks about being inspired, like kind of falsely. And that's why I have a sponsor, because I get really inspired, especially my first thought four days sober was, um, I meet my sponsor, the guy who's my sponsor today, and I, I absolutely hated him. He was, a uh, he was hydrated, he was, he was fresh skin, glowing, that's, that's talks about in the book. He had, he had a real job, he paid taxes, and, um, he was in a relationship that he had planned out beforehand with a woman who was sober who had a job and all that stuff, and, he had a he had a host of friends and um i hated all of them i didn't like any of them and i meant it man and uh, but they're the only ones who would pick me up and take me to meetings man it's the, the first thing that happened when i met this guy is i ran an idea by him and one of his friends so i kind of inserted myself into their conversation by by stating that um, i have a really good plan i'm just going to get my old lady pregnant and um we're going to move on from there and um his response to me was um that sounds like a really great idea, Andy. Why don't you drag three or four other people into your BS in your first thirty days sober? And I, and I don't I didn't take that well because I'm four days sober, I'm an A and I gotta be a tough guy. And I'm so you know, if I'm sober enough, I just got out of a nut ward but I have to be a tough guy. And I'm really and I, 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 alcohol supports that really well. But when I'm stone cold sober, the only thing I could think of was um, if I, you know, he's bigger than me. He's got about fifty pounds of muscle on me. I'm 128 pounds, soaking wet. I haven't drank water in about a month willingly. This guy, this, this guy, this guy looks pretty comfortable. And he said, he said it very calmly, and very quickly, and he, he really believed in what he was saying. And I, I couldn't say that about anything I was saying. Everything that came out of my mouth was um just a bunch of useless information, man. And um he taught me exercises. Like if you if you're talking in a group of people, especially new guys, um don't talk about x y and z basically all the sick stuff that I, awesome stuff i bring here when i'm a couple weeks sober i think i got really crazy war stories that um, i really want to share with you because it's really the only thing that makes that makes me feel good about myself anymore and, um, and he was like trying try not talking about that for 72 hours and i uh, heard what was it a day and a half and i made it um i made it half the, I, I made it three quarters of a day man and i called him and i was like this is not this isn't working that i tried it and I'm like, what do I talk to people about? He's like, well, ask them, ask them what steps they're on. Ask them, uh, ask them uh, how they, uh, you know, ask them how they're doing, stuff like that. And I'm like, what if they ask you about my story? How do I tell them about, how do I tell them about strippers and drugs and alcohol and all this? Shit? And, um, so that that's, all I know how to talk about. And he, he said something like, uh, well, tell them how you felt. Tell them how you felt. And, uh, people can relate with stuff like that. And, um, that's, that's kind of where I was at when I sobered up, um, I was, I was just really scared, man. And when people told me stuff like that, um, I, I really, I, I thought I was angry. I thought I was like an angry guy because um, being scared, it, sound, it sounds kind of weak. And if I'm angry, at least I can hold on to some cool guy. left, you know, Like I can be angry at you and like hopefully you see that and you respect me. But people who had actually taken the steps and who were doing hey, they would tell me stuff like, you, just, you sound really scared. Mainly my friends, the guys who I hated who I call my friends today. And um, now we tell you guys stuff like... Uh, you just sound really scared, man. And um, I I take a great joy in doing stuff like that. And, um, <laughs> and um, I don't know, man. What, what he did for me was um, this guy had a God working at, Like, my first three months, I, I thought this guy was like God. Like, it was crazy. I ended up asking him to sponsor me, and um, I asked him to show me what he did. I didn't ask him to sponsor him. I'm like, what do you, okay, show me what you did. If it's so awesome, just show me what you did. And he was like, shook my hand really hard. And um, he was really excited about that. And then, um, and I started kind of doing what he did, man. So i to get a couple of commitments, had me get a book and he read the thing to me. And um, when it's like, when it's talking about certain principles, things we must do, like the way that we must kind of treat other people and carry ourselves and like thoughts that must must go with me constantly. Like you point that out and kind of highlight it, underline it. And, um, and um, I've kind of, I guess I had some sort of psychic change, man. That I I did not know while it was happening. It's not what I came here for. Uh, my my thoughts when I came here were, um, if I had three days sleep, I played a carne asada fries and a thousand dollars, then all my problems would be solved. And I and I really meant it. And um, I all I could think about was getting loaded. This is after being sober for a while. Um, I love the effects produced by alcohol, man. And um. That's kind of what that last run taught me. He was like, stone-cold sober, like, this, like, requires, this requires something. And, um, I found that something in Alcoholics Anonymous. He had a power working through him, and he showed me how he got in contact with the power, man. And it was through taking the actions, in the book. It wasn't any other way. And, um, five whole minutes, fired up. But, oh, two? Okay. And, um, <laughs> He, he showed me what he did, man. He showed he showed me how he showed me how to write an inventory. He showed me how to write an ideal, from um, you know my, my sex relations. He showed me, you know, what what is a third step? It's like it's talking about you know established on that footing. Like I'm less and less interested in myself. Like there's third step there's third third step promises stuff like that. He would show me, and I believed him because you could see that it was working through him, man. Like he was he was a really good example, and I I still call him. I love that man. And uh, tomorrow we're gonna we got thanksgiving going on and um like we have a thanksgiving dinner bringing some some food and um called my mom earlier today asked her if i could spend the night i got consent for that i didn't just show up i just i actually asked her and um i didn't and and i'm i'm kind of like i kind of think like this is um because my family i come from a very loving family and i didn't um and uh, they never left me like my family didn't come back like they didn't just like oh like oh i got my family back it's like i didn't i don't think i got my family back i think they were there the whole entire time but um when i was taught to make amends i was like like the way i was taught was when i when i asked my mom on top of the 17 something thousand dollars that i owe her ask her ask her questions like you know how was it being my son and i got to learn that um it wasn't just you know it was it was some pretty heartbreaking stuff and um Part of what she really wanted from me was, you know, come around, call me. And um, so my job is, like, you know, call her when I really don't want stuff. Like, not even, not because not I want something, because I want to see how she's doing. And I've learned more my mom, more about my mom, my sister, and my dad in the past eight months, than I've learned my whole entire life. Um, I, like, I love being there, and um, I feel like Alcoholics Anonymous has kind of inserted a different person into their life. It's like I didn't, they didn't just magically come back because um, God just, like, struck me. And, um, I don't know. I think God wants me to do stuff. He wants me to like get an action. And um, so those actions are showing up, taking guys to meetings, sponsoring guys. I have to practice prayer and meditation every morning. I gotta look at myself every night. I gotta bring that, bring that crap into work. If I don't, and um, I don't know, man. I have alcoholism, man, and I'll drink over alcoholism. I, I have alcoholism, and I thoroughly believe it, man. That I have all three parts of that that first step, man: body, mind, spirit. And um, I also believe pretty strongly that if I don't believe that third part, then why the hell would I do the rest of the steps? And um, you know, if, if I could just do a third step, why would I need it? Why would I need the rest of the steps? It all kind of makes sense after doing it all. And um, so I'm just really happy. I, I don't love anything more than I love AA right now. It's um, it's where I want to be. I look forward to Sunday more than anything else. I look forward to my the meetings that I go to more than anything else, man. Like when I'm with you guys, I feel safe. And um, I don't miss all that free time, man. I don't, I don't miss trying to run the gamut of how much money I can spend on this to make myself feel better. Like, um, I kind of feel like I have everything I need. And um, I love my friendships today. And um, yeah, people ask me to come places like this and do this. And it's like, um, if I don't have a power working in me, it's like, <clears throat> of course I'm going to be sketched out. And I'm going to be like, oh, like, what am I going to say? But if I, if I do have that... <clears throat> What's, what's keeping me from wanting to share that with a group of 150 something people like I get fired up on that I got, I got called on my cursing in Vaughn's earlier today because um, there's some old Christian lady and she's like you just cursed a lot and it's cause I was talking to my sponsor about how fired up I was about sharing for 10 minutes and she said something really important and I'll close with it and she said um and I was like oh I was like, Jesus I'm sorry and she was like yeah she's like, she's like I used to curse a lot too and I was like I had no idea I'm really sorry and she said something, and she was, and I was like, I just, you know, I've, I've been working on it. And she like, You have, huh? And I was like, Yeah, I've been really trying. I thought I was doing really good this morning, but you just pointed something out to me, and I, I realized it. And I was just shopping and talking on the phone, and, and she said something to me that kind of resonated with me. She said, um, She said, she said, you know what? You're gonna have a great future ahead of you because you're, um, you're coachable. You know, you, you can you accept correction. And um, I learned that from you guys. I got a recipe for an antipasto salad that I just copied online that I copied online and, and and what I did today was follow directions so I think it's going to I followed the directions that it said on the recipes and that's kind of what I'm doing here and I and I feel I feel amazing and I love being here and I really don't want to be any, anywhere else I feel like I found everything I need and um, that's what he told me I was pretty much fine so I guess I'll close
4: with that thanks for having me Greetings, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast, Daily Reflections. I'm Fernando Alcoholic for January the 2nd. Let's go ahead and open this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. You know, talking, referring about the promises, you can say this. God, the supply for it is not here yet, but it will come. If we should have it, it will surely come. Very good statement to be saying all day long. We get what we say. We get what we talk about. All right, let's go ahead and get right into our reading right away. Daily Reflections for January the 2nd. As Bill sees it, page 8 says... Is sobriety all that we can expect of a spiritual awakening? No, sobriety is only a bare beginning. Practicing the AA program is like building a house. First, I had to pour a big thick concrete slab on which to erect the house, that to me was the equivalent of stopping drinking. But it's pretty uncomfortable living on a concrete slab, unprotected and exposed to the heat, cold, wind and rain. So I built a room on the slab by starting to practice the program. The first room was rickety because I wasn't used to the work. But as time passed, as I practiced the program, I learned to build better rooms. The more I practiced and the more I built, the more comfortable and happy was the home I now have lived in. Fernando Alcoholic, that comes to mind, how we start a brand new meeting out of nowhere. We started with the traditions. You know, we reinforced the house, the room, with the traditions. And and then from there, we have the chairs, the desk, and we have the 12 steps, and we start to work on it. And that's how we develop a good home for a good living, to uh, welcome the principles, the principles of our higher power that makes this thing go. Amen. Today, I'm going to be reading you a story, It Works at Work. It's from uh, June 2000 of A Grapevine. I'm reading it from the the Next Frontier Booklet, Emotional Sobriety, a Grapevine publication, aagrapevine.org. A frustrating morning at work drove me to a noon AA meeting where I was called on to share. I unloaded my frustration of working with people who care only for themselves. A co-worker had, I thought, intentionally misled me about the location of a business meeting where as a trainee, I was to observe him facilitate. This I thought was my big chance, and he seemed intent on elbowing me out of the limelight. For years of both college and sobriety had resulted in an unfinished degree and the title of clerk. No matter how hard I worked, nothing seemed to make a difference in either my income or my title. I was ambitious and hardworking, but with no direction i repeatedly asked my sponsor when i would know what direction i should take at work his response was always just show up and be of service after i concluded my whining joe d was called on he looked at me and said debbie no one was happier than i i was that you worked the step now why don't you try working the traditions start with the first one it was explained to me that to put our commonwealth welfare first I would have to put myself second. Tradition one meant putting ourselves to the side and working for the greater good. This was not what I expected to hear, but I had run out of ideas and become willing to try doing it differently. It didn't take long for me to realize that in order to consider the common welfare of my common, of my work group, I had to be willing to let go of my resentments toward them, specifically to my co-worker. I had to look for many parts in the situation because I knew by this time that people didn't usually avoid me without good reason. I remember that a couple of times at a meeting which my co-worker was leading, I had fired some of my sarcastic but funny comments at his expense. The group laughed, but I remember the look on his eyes. No wonder he was avoiding me. He couldn't control what was coming out of my mouth. I had to clean up my side of the street with him and and did so by telling him that I was both aware of and sorry for what I had done and in the future, I would make every effort to support rather than embarrass him. I asked him if there was anything I could do to be of service to him. He didn't jump at my offer. A few weeks later, I saw an opportunity to be of service and I asked him if he liked me to assist with the design of a presentation layout for the training course he was preparing. It was an important project and one that he had put a great deal of time and effort into it. He accepted my offer. This time I had a different motive than before. Designed to meet the needs of the presenter and the audience instead of my own desire to be paid more or single out for praise. As the design began to take shape, so did my attitude about my job. I began to experience the true satisfaction of being a worker among workers. I found that I had an opportunity to help me help make something that fostered confidence rather than panic in the presenters. I even found opportunities to apply humor into the presentation, not the wicked kind that hurts but the witty kind that helped people feel good. The week prior to the big event, my coworker asked me to accompany him because as he put it, I will have more confidence if I know you are there to help if anything goes wrong with the presentation. Imagine that. As I worked the first tradition to the best of my ability, I noticed a sense of well-being at work and an increased interest in others. It had never occurred to me before that the result of working the traditions might be the same as working the steps. And the effects of tradition one continued to amaze me. A few months after the big event, My co-worker's wife entered the AA Fellowship for the first time. The combination of relief, gratitude, and awe at the power of the AA program washed over me when I realized that my behavior outside of AA could affect either positively or negatively a newcomer who had not yet entered our doors. What would they have thought of this program if I had not cleaned up my side of the street at work? Tradition one. Thank God we will never know because my co-worker's wife like what we saw wanted what we had and was just celebrated two years of sobriety it is my privilege to be her sponsor what about my career and the title that i had been so anxious to attain it comes as no surprise to me that my current job is so identified is to identify areas of need in organizations and then design information systems that will meet those needs as for my job title it will probably change when i complete my degree somewhere around june 2001 imagine that that was from deborah m from richland washington beautiful beautiful wonderful it's no coincidence folks that both of those uh the uh these stories are aligned they were taken quite randomly but if any of you are thinking about opening up a club opening up uh, or how to handle uh, a room, the emphasis is no crosstalk. You know, everybody shares for three to four or five minutes. They need to, when a newcomer enters the room, they're they're the most important one. We tell them how we got there and we we steer the the committee, take a vote and steer it over to helping the newcomer and uh, not asking the newcomer questions and shooting questions at them. But, telling them how we were newcomers with and we didn't think this program was gonna work and how it worked for us and how the the words took us to flight to other areas of our life where we needed it where we needed to grow up and see where we were wrong where we were pushing the envelope and finally we got caught (laughs) all right let's go ahead and go down to our King uh, Solomon my sponsor there, here we walk into his group into his fellowship, and let's see what he's got to say for today, for our morning Proverbs the second for this day. All right, Proverbs from the the Passion translation. It says, "Searching for wisdom" is the title. My alki, will you treasure my wisdom? Then and only then will you acquire it and only if you accept my advice and hide it within you with all your, and then you will succeed so train your heart to listen up when I speak train yourself and open your spirit wide to expand your discernment then pass it on to others to others that come in through the program yes you cry out for comprehension and and wisdom and answers, interceding for insight, and you ended up here in the rooms of AA in the 12-step program. If you keep seeking it like a man would seek for sterling silver, searching for hidden places of cherished treasure, then you will discover the respect and the honor of the Lord. And you find the true knowledge of God. Wisdom is a gift from a generous God, and every word he speaks is full of revelation and becomes a foundation of understanding within you. For the Lord has hidden storehouses of wisdom, made accessible to his upright godly ones that want it, to the ones that want it. He becomes your personal bodyguard as you follow his ways protecting and guarding you as you choose what is right. Then you will discover all that is just, proper, and fair, and be empowered to make the right decisions as you walk into your destiny. Now listen up. When wisdom wins your heart and revelation breaks in, true pleasure enters your soul. True pleasure. If you choose to follow good counsel, divine design will watch over you, and understanding will protect you from making poor choices. It will rescue you from evil in disguise and from those who speak duplicities, for they have left the path of righteousness and walk in the way of darkness. They take pleasure when evil prospers and thoroughly enjoy a lifestyle of sin but they're walking on a path to nowhere, wandering away in deeper deception. Only wisdom can save you from the flattery of the, of the promiscuous woman. She's such a smooth-talking seductress. She left her husband and has forgotten her wedding vows. You'll find her house on the road to hell and all the men who go through her doors will never come back to the place they were. They will find nothing but desolation and despair. Follow those who follow wisdom and stay on the right path. For all my godly lovers will enjoy life to the fullest and will inherit their destinies. But the treasurer's ones who love darkness will lose not only all they could have had, but even they'll lose their own souls. Oh boy, pretty tough, huh? I'm Fernando Alcoholic. Thank you so much for coming on today's podcast. Uh, Let's go ahead and finish off with the Lord's Prayer, please. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Keep coming back, family. It works.